The University of Miami Law School Entertainment Arts and Sports Law Program presents the Leadership Game Plan. I'm Executive Producer and Program Director Greg Levy, and now over to our host, longtime NFL coordinator, head coach, three-time Grey Cup champion, NCAA champion with the Miami Hurricanes, Miami Law graduate, and now adjunct faculty member, Coach Mark Tressman. I believe that everyone can lead, no matter who you are or what you do. I believe just like quarterbacks, leaders are not born, they are developed. With so many platforms to speak our minds, there are countless ways to lead and impact the lives of others. So how we lead in this accelerating and interconnected world will determine our present and our future. That's why leadership today matters more than ever. Welcome to the Leadership Game Plan, where we go beyond the X's and O's through the unique lens of our accomplished guests. I'm your host, Mark Tressman, and let's get started. knowledge when they make mistakes is important. And what I did as I grew within my career was I acknowledged my mistakes. Whenever I made a mistake, I would say to my colleagues, to my coworkers, to the staff, I made a mistake and I need you to help me fix it. And they always were eager to help me solve problems I caused to fix mistakes I made. And what I would go on to say is, When I make a mistake, I'm gonna tell you I made a mistake and I'm gonna ask you to help me fix it. I first met Amy Trask when I joined the Oakland Raiders as his assistant coach in 2001. At that time, she was four years into her new role as the Raiders CEO. During our time with the Raiders, our paths crossed a number of times at the Raiders facility elevator the key connector between a building separating business administration from football operations. In 1983, Amy was a 22-year-old law student, unsure of what her future held. What she did know was the fact that she was a big football fan. And while attending Cal Berkeley as an undergrad student, she developed a love for the Raiders. So Amy landed an internship in Los Angeles in the Raiders legal department. After graduating from law school at the University of Southern California, she went to work at a law firm before returning to the Raiders in 1987. Then, in 1997, Amy was promoted to the position of Chief Executive Officer of the Raiders. 14 years after starting as an intern, Amy had become the first female CEO in NFL history. As CEO, Amy was responsible for all non-football business for the Raiders organization, handling everything from finances to league compliance, and serving as the official point of contact between the organization and the NFL. She was also working closely each and every day with owner Al Davis on all matters pertaining to the Raiders. Amy retired from her position as CEO in 2013 after 16 years of service. Since then, she has become a football analyst, where her passion, authenticity, ability to articulate relevant events, and her experience in the game are all reflected daily on all media platforms. 
please welcome to the podcast, Amy Trask. Amy, I'm just grateful that you're here today to share, you know, your leadership experience with us. And um, we've crossed paths before. We I spent three years at Oakland while you were spending a quite a much more time there than 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 I was able to uh, be there, unfortunately. And though I followed your career path, uh, we did cross paths periodically, but we didn't get to know each other as well as I would have liked to on a professional basis. And I'm just really excited to have you here today. Uh, so welcome. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to join you. And of course, you are correct. We didn't overlap in terms of our work responsibilities and our day-to-day responsibilities much when we were together, but I enjoyed working with you um, for many, many, many reasons. And of course, for those listening, the way our offices were set up was um, just very different areas in the organization. And I'm talking physically right now. So Mark and I didn't even walk around the same particular part of the organization all that much. But we did interact, uh, of course, and, and I, I enjoyed those interactions and I enjoyed working with you very, very much. Thank, thank you, Amy. And, and we're going to jump into the Oakland experience a little bit later, but I really wanted to start here with kind of the master, the obvious question for all our podcast guests that really has no exact answer. And that is, from your perspective, how do you define leadership? I'll define it by using that which you said. There is no particular definition, um, or let me state it differently, I don't think any one definition has to be the definition. People lead in different styles. Now, there are some things consistent that I believe should be in all definitions of leadership. A do as I say, not as I do um, is not leadership. There are other examples of what is not leadership. But as to what leadership is, people lead differently. People lead in different manners, in different styles. It doesn't mean that any particular manner or style is necessarily the only or the best manner or style. People can and should lead in the manner that works best for them. But being a leader means just that, leading. Do as I say, not as I do is not leadership. And of course, there are other examples of lack of leadership. And we'll, we can maybe jump into that a little later as well, but it's certainly a good start. You know, in our class um, at the University of Miami School of Law and our leadership course there, you know, we talk about the fact that before you can really lead others, you've got to be able to lead yourself. You've got to be able to uh, understand yourself and where you came from, so to speak. Um, you have to be a leader most of your, you've been a leader most of your adult life. You know, how did you learn to lead yourself, first of all? The best advice I've ever received in my life was from my mom, who told me from the time I was a very, very little girl, to thine own self be true. And my mom told me that over and over and over again. And as kids, particularly teenage girls can do, There were times I rolled my eyes when she said it simply because she said it so often. And I rolled my eyes in the sense of, yeah, 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 I know you've told me that a million times. Uh, But notwithstanding that she told me a million times, and I appreciate that she did, but notwithstanding that she told me so many times that I rolled my eyes, I was rolling it only at the fact that, well, I was a teenage girl. Uh, It is the best advice I've ever received in my life. And I will share by way of footnote that it wasn't until I was in college that I learned that it wasn't my mom who 
came up with that expression, it was William Shakespeare. And my mom was simply quoting Shakespeare when she told me, to thine own self be true. But to thine own self be true is the best advice I've ever received in my life. And the reason I note that in this context is that one has to figure out how one leads best. The times that I have bumbled and stumbled, or I should say, my biggest bumbles and stumbles, my biggest mistakes, my biggest regrets are when I have not followed that advice. When I have tried to be something or to be someone that I am not. And what I learned is that my mom was exactly right. William Shakespeare was exactly right. To thine elf's own self be true. Lead in the manner that is true to yourself. Don't try to be someone or something you are not. Don't try to lead in a manner that is not true to yourself. That's not going to work. That's beautiful. And when I think of your mom and I think about the fact that you have to be relentless to be a leader, that even when Amy Trask is rolling your eye, was rolling her eyes, your mom stayed on task to thine own self be true. (laughs) You know, I've, I've found that in front of teams that if you have a belief and you have a passion and you have a vision and there's people in the audience of your team that are rolling their eyes, that doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to be relentless in trying to sell what you believe in. And that's what your mother did. Uh, Your mother was a a leader uh, herself. That is a phenomenal point. Phenomenal point. I had never looked at it that way. I was simply sharing that to underscore that even though as a little girl and then as a preteen and then as a teen, I may not have fully appreciated her words. Um, I appreciate them now. I've appreciated them for decades. And as kids can do, I did roll my eyes, but that doesn't in any way undermine the powerfulness and the importance of that advice. So your note about repeating to teams, that which may cause eye rolling is a phenomenal point. Yeah, coaches do it, support staff does it. And I would I would always say, and, and this is what your mom may have been thinking without knowing it, some of you get it, some of you don't, but eventually you will. And eventually you got it. And uh, it, it, uh, it laid a, a, an important brick for an, an amazing career, I would say. Um, can, we, can we stay on a little bit on your upbringing, uh, sure. if you don't mind? Um, you know, our first class we're going to have on Friday with, with our, our students in the leadership course. And one of the things we've asked them to do is to look back at their narrative, not to give us their resume, but what in their upbringing in their short lives, because they're millennials or Generation Zers, you know, what were some people or some moments, and in your case, maybe besides mom, that influenced you to be the leader that, that you are today? You know, there's a lot of discussion um, nowadays, if you will, but nowadays, of course, goes back a number of years of having a mentor or the importance of mentorship. I never had one particular mentor, nor do I believe it's necessarily the wisest choice to single out one person and say, will you be my mentor or you are my mentor? I view it more from the perspective of it takes a village. And I will quickly note that when I say I didn't have a single mentor, it's not to in any way negate or diminish that which I learned from so many people, but to underscore the fact that I did 
benefit from and learn from many, many, many people. So there wasn't one particular person who I said, aha, this is going to be the person that I want to be my mentor, or this is going to be the single person I'm going to look for, for advice. I grabbed advice and, and, and benefited from the leadership, to use your word, and the input and the wisdom of many, many people. And I think that's a terrific way to go about it. I like to say, or I like to quote, to use the saying, it takes a village. But I think we're all better when we learn as much as we can and benefit as much as we can from an entire village, not simply one person. Now, that said, I, of course, did uh, absorb so much from my mom and from my dad. Um, and as you may imagine, Mark, Al Davis no is someone from whom I learned a tremendous amount and from whom I benefited greatly. 100%. And, and what you, what you know we're going to hit on Mr. Davis in a, in a bit. And, and I like your view of uh, it takes a village relative to mentors because I, I kind of refer to it as my board of directors. And, and through <laughs> my great. life, my, my board of directors has changed. You know, it, it's, it's fluid along the way. There's different people that come into, you come into contact with. And, you know, I know you're a lifelong learner. I'm a lifelong learner. And, and we're going to grasp and ask questions and do the things that we need to do to try to, try to get better. Can you flip the role for a second? Because um, I'm all in on, on, on the village and the board of directors. Have you been a mentor for others and along the way, and are you now? And, and what does that look like a little bit? Because I look at mentorship and menteeship as, as really uh, in, interchangeable. It's as important for the mentee to be active as it is for the mentor to be active and vice versa. How, how do you see it in, in, from a mentor standpoint, if you, you have been one in the past or are one now? Well, first of all, let me note that your board of directors analogy is tremendous. I don't know if you could hear me laugh when you said it, but that <laughs> laughter was of, wow, that is really a smart way of looking at that. It was sort of a, that's a terrific analogy, laughter. Uh, I, when, when people reach out to me, um, as they do from time to time and say, will you be my mentor? My response is always, I'm happy to help. And I'm happy to pitch in in any way that I can. But I don't think you should have just one mentor. And I then share with the person making the request that which I just shared with you, which is you're going to be better and stronger and more powerful at, at what you do and, and better able to pursue your goals if you have more than one person giving you input. So sure, I'm happy to provide advice. I'm happy to answer questions. I'm happy to share observations. I'm happy to weigh in if and as my weigh-in is requested, but I don't think you should have just one mentor. I think that's too limiting. Is there such thing as having too many mentors where you get so many different points of view that it just confuses you, or is it the mentee's job to kind of filter through the information and then, and then make decisions that he feels are in his or her best interest? I think as a general rule, both as to this topic and life in general, listening to more viewpoints, getting more input is always beneficial. But yes, to your point, then you have to weed out what is not valuable or what is affirmatively invaluable. Well, no, that's a wrong use of invaluable. Um, I always stumble over that word invaluable because it has two meanings. So <laughs> it now must this be that first drink. It's that first drink. <laughs> <laughs> now this little, you know, okay. 
vocabulary yes. segue aside, I will say, look, there are times you get input that is affirmatively wrong and you need yes. to push that aside. And there's time you get input that, okay, that's not all mm -hmm. that helpful. Let me not prioritize that. But that's something that's important in life in general. Listen to people, learn from people, and then choose yes. what you choose to accept, what you don't, what you place value on what you don't and what you're going to prioritize. Yeah, I, I think that's awesome. Tell me a little bit about how your leadership style may have evolved or your understanding of leadership has evolved, you know, between law school, you know, through your years with the Raiders and now, and, you know, were there any time in that you had a pause or you pivoted from the way you saw leadership early on and then later on as you gain gained in position of more responsibility in the, in the roles that you had uh, in your career? I don't think there was any particular pivot to use that expression that you used. Um, look, I started my career with the Raiders when I was very, very young. Um, I was an intern in the early part of my 20s. I joined the organization full-time in my mid-20s. And so I grew up on the job. And I don't mean I only grew up in a learning how to do the job sense. I grew up on the job. I went straight from college to law school and then did my internship during law school and then joined on a full-time basis. So I grew up on the job as relates to the job and I grew up on the job. Mm -hmm. I made a lot of mistakes over the course of that growing up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, people make mistakes and that's okay. But when you move from one job to another, you can leave the mistakes you made in job one behind you and have a fresh start in job two. My mistakes, because I was with the Raiders almost 30 years, stayed with me. And I don't mean stayed with me in a negative way. I, I mean, simply, I made the mistakes on the same job I held for almost 30 years. There was no sort of packing them in a box and stowing them away and moving on to a new fresh start. And one of the things, I became passionately aware of, I think I was always aware of this, but I became a passionate advocate of the philosophy. And I am to this day, a passionate advocate of, of the philosophy. It's okay to make a mistake. Now, look, if you're a brain surgeon or a heart surgeon, or really, I guess any kind of surgeon, and you're in the middle of surgery and you scream out, oh no, I screwed up. Okay, that's a problem. If you're a fighter pilot and you're piloting a fighter jet and you're flying upside down at 500 miles an hour and you scream out, I made a mistake, that could be a problem. But as a general rule in business, mistakes can be fixed. Now, they may cost you money. There may be economic consequences to a mistake. But as a general rule, mistakes can be fixed. And what I learned over the course of my career was encouraging others to go ahead and acknowledge when they make mistakes is important. And what I did as I grew within my career was I acknowledged my mistakes. Whenever I made a mistake, I would say to my colleagues, to my coworkers, to the staff, I made a mistake and I need you to help me fix it. And they always were eager to help me solve problems I caused to fix mistakes I made. And what I would go on to say is, when I make a mistake, 
I'm going to tell you I made a mistake and I'm going to ask you to help me fix it. And when you make a mistake, I want you to tell me you've made a mistake and I am going to do everything I can to help you fix it. And I found that by admitting when I had made a mistake, raising my hand and saying, I made a mistake, will you help me fix it? It encouraged others. It led, it was leadership by example. Right, you, by, just, you just define vulnerability. And well, by being and I, vulnerable yourself, you've created a safe, safe locker room for yourself that people are able to admit their mistakes because you've led by example. Isn't that right? Well, I never considered it in that context of vulnerability. What I considered it to be was honesty. Hey, mm-hmm. I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. I need you guys to help me fix it. But what that did was it gave others the confidence and made them feel comfortable to right. say, aim, I made a mistake. And my immediate response was, okay, tell me what you did. Tell me what it is. Tell me what happened and let me help you fix it. Now, I will also note that the bigger my mistake was, the more ice cream I had available at the staff meeting I called when I asked everybody to help me fix it. So they would know when they walked in and there was a massive ice cream sundae set up, uh-oh, Amy must have really made a big mistake because she's going to ask us to fix it. And she's bringing lots of ice cream to this party. And I did have ice cream at those meetings. I had ice cream at most meetings. But look, if you're willing to, maybe it's leadership by example. If I'm willing to say, I made a mistake, help me fix it. Others should feel comfortable saying, I made a mistake, Amy, help me fix it. Yeah, 100%. I just, people are going to feel safe saying those things and admitting their mistakes when their leader is capable of doing the same. I mean, I just think it's a beautiful example of what leadership looks like. Let me ask you about leadership today. You know, this is a new world we live in. We've watched over the last 30 years, you and I, this, this world change dramatically. It's, it's a hyper interconnected world. You know, everybody has access to the internet. Everybody has access to information. If you can press send, uh, you can influence others. You know, I think about Carl Nassib. He probably didn't ask John, you know, and I don't mean this to be inappropriate, but it just as example, whether he could announce that he was gay. Cole Beasley came out and said he wasn't going to take the vaccine. I'm sure he didn't ask Sean McDermott about it. He got on Instagram, he got on his, his social media, and he decided to tell people what he was going to do. That's that's a form of leadership and the um, horizontal hierarchy of leadership that I think is beginning to exist um, at all levels of business and sports. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, look, obviously, it's a very, very different world than when I started my career. When I started my career, you know, that's when people were just kind of right around the time, maybe a little after cell phones, but those cell phones. They were about the size of shoeboxes and they looked like giant bricks you held in your hand. So right. there were no, remember those? Sure. Um, look, when I started my career, there was no Twitter. There was no Snapchat, no Instagram, no Facebook, no, no, you know, no, any of that. You know, I could go all Bill Belichick and say there was no Snapface or, or whatever it was he called it, but none of those social media platforms existed. When we interacted with the league office at the beginning of my career, it wasn't even by email. If the league office wanted to send us an important memo, it came by fax machine. 
there, there are probably people in your class that are like fax machine. Wait a minute. Aren't those in the museum of this ancient history? So yes, all of this social media adds an entirely new um, layer to all of this. And you're right. People now have a worldwide platform on which to immediately share a thought. So if I tweet something right this minute, people around the world can see it as soon as I hit the word tweet. And obviously that goes for other platforms as well. So I think of that all not simply in in the context of leadership, which I recognize is this subject, but in the context of how much harder it makes lives in many, many ways. I think back to junior high school and the whole mean girl issue. And you might walk into the locker room at gym and there might be a mean girl there who would say something, but it wasn't going worldwide. So yes, this worldwide instant communication allows us to lead on a worldwide basis, but it also allows people to do a lot of harm and a lot of damage. So it permeates everything. That's why I think that as leaders, we have to teach those that we that are in our airspace how to lead because now you can lead regardless of your role and you can have an impact on a whole lot of people. And so the way you influence others um, affects their ability to act and their ability to lead because again, I think everybody has the ability to lead in today's world regardless of their role. The good news about that is the world could use more good leaders. And you're absolutely right. Those leaders need not be in an official position of leadership. Anyone can work to lead using the tools you just said. So there's both a very frightening side to that, but there's also a very hopeful side to that. I think that's the relentless side of, you know, where my heart is, is that we have to spend time teaching those around us, you know, the, the, the best ways, the positive ways to use leadership to influence others because, uh, you know, we're all interconnected as, as, as you well know. Um, I got a whole class of law school students that are listening to this podcast. Um, can you tell them about anything that you learned about leading in law school? I was one of the many, many law school students, and some listening to this may fall into this category as well, who went to law school without the intent to practice law. In other words, it was not my thinking, it was not my intent to be a practicing lawyer, certainly not to be a trial lawyer. I went to law school, and I note that for a reason, I'll tell you in a minute, it's kind of a funny aside. Oh, what the heck, I'll do it now. Yes. You know, I was one, I was one of the many people who went to law school thinking, or with the intent to use my legal education to help me in the business world. I didn't intend to be a practicing lawyer. And I always note, I certainly never intended to be a trial lawyer. That just wasn't for me. I was not going to enter foot in a a courtroom. I used to say to people, I will not set foot in a courtroom. And then I ended up being a witness in how many lawsuits between the NFL and the Raiders. But I do want to note that whenever I entered those courtrooms, it was as a witness, not as a trial attorney. Uh, that aside, I went to law school for the for the education. I went to law school for the background. I, I guess the best word to use, and I'll keep using it, is for the education. 
and with the desire to use that which I would learn in the business world. And it's been invaluable in, see there, I just used invaluable correctly. It's been invaluable in that regard. A legal education, a law school education can help in any number of careers, whether one chooses to be a practicing attorney or not. Uh, As to anything I learned in particular with respect to leadership, I don't think there was anything I learned in law school that's different from that which I've simply learned in life as to leadership. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, law school for me was time management. It was real attention to details along the way. Um, and, and those things about just managing around law school, managing your life around law school and in law school was just as important to me uh, in my growth uh, as a coach, uh, as, as really studying the case, case law along the way. Could not agree with you more about the importance of attention to detail. Attention to detail matters. It really matters. And I believe, and I have long said, attention to detail separates those who are perhaps good at what they do from those who are great at what they do. The other thing I will note about law school, the most important thing to me about law school by just a huge margin, a, a gigantic margin, the biggest margin imaginable. I met my husband in law school. So there you go. (laughs) <laughs> I, my leading experience in law school was managing my study group and getting them in one place at the same time and making sure everybody did their part. And I was kind of a in other words, coaching. Of, yeah, I in was other coaching. Words, coaching. Yeah, I was the, I was the C student in the group, but uh, I wouldn't have gotten a C without uh, those three others being on time and, and sharing their notes and their, their thoughts with me. I can tell you that. Well, there, there you go. You were a coach <laughs> in law school. That's it. I really was. I was coach. I started coaching in my second year. But speaking of football, why football for you? How did it all happen? I fell in love with the game of football when I was in junior high. I just loved everything about the game. And yes, it's an exciting game to watch. Uh, and it's, it's a fun game to watch. But there's a tremendous um, cerebral component to the game. I know I need not tell you this. I don't need to explain any of this to you, obviously. And that is stating the obvious, but I'm sharing it with the class. Uh, There is a very, very cerebral component to football. It is a game of matchups. How does your pass protection match up against my pass rush? How can can my corners cover your receivers man-to-man, or do I have to adjust that? It's a game of matchups, and I find that fascinating, and the best coaches are the ones who best note and exploit and use to their advantage those matchup differentials. Now, the fun or funny thing about me falling in love with the game when I was in junior high is I grew up in a family where people did not stay home and watch football on Sundays. Everyone was out of the house doing something. And I was always the one that said, nah, I want to stay home and watch football. And my family looked at me like, did we take the wrong one home from the hospital? Because like, this, who are you? <laughs> but I fell in love with the game of football um, and ultimately became a fan of the Raiders when I was at co- in college at Cal Berkeley, which is just up the freeway from where the Raiders were playing at the time I was in college. So that's really how my love mm-hmm. for football started, both in junior high and my love for the organization, my, my fanship. I don't think that's a word either. 
I became a fan of the organization in college, not as much for what the organization or not for what the organization did on the field, but for what it stood for off the field. I wanted to, uh, you, you would have a perfect conduit to the Raiders, but I just wanted to add to your interpretation of football, since you got a football coach that you're talking to at, the, at this bar here. Um, I agree with you. You know, football, I've always said football is not blocking, tackling, you know, and running. Football is a science. It's a complex science. And uh, to be able to coach it, like any, in any business, you have to know your science, and uh, I, I just uh, totally agree that, um, you know, it's just not as simple as people make it out to be, that it is a science, it has details, it has components and fundamentals that have to be learned uh, by the teacher and taught by the teacher, and then has to be simplified. And I think that's part of leadership as well is we have to take complex things and make it simple enough so that those listening and, and doing the job can understand. But that's why it's so much fun. And uh, yeah, I, I can feel your passion because that's where my passion was growing up as well, knowing that it just wasn't, you know, a game of a bunch of tough, you know, uh, uh, alpha males playing the game. It was a lot more than that. Well, and I will um, jump right in before we move on to anything to note that although at the, well, I'll note two things. That when Mark refers to us being in a bar, I want everybody to know this is a virtual bar. We are not actually in a bar, nor are we drinking. That is my disclaimer. Uh, we're not drinking yet. Maybe we will at some point, but we're not right now. Yeah, okay. I, and everybody. Should, you're right. Everybody should know that. I, I, I told Amy that you know, just think of us sitting at a bar and and talking talking leadership together. So I've, I've to made which, fun with that. Metaphor, to but, which I reply that I think that's a great methodology to have any conversation. And although we are not actually in a bar and we are not actually drinking, I do look forward to meeting you at some point soon <laughs> in a bar and having a drink. Now, that said, I also want to note that while, and, and this relates to the, the comments you just made, I noted at the outset of the conversation, as did you, that because of the setup of the Raider offices and because of our differing roles within the Raider organization, you and I did not interact on a regular or a frequent basis. But I do want to share with everyone that when Mark and I did interact, because we did, I mean, it wasn't frequent, it wasn't regular, it wasn't every day, but we did have many interactions. Every single time we discussed football, I was impressed by that which you shared. And we had these discussions. I'm thinking right by that elevator in the back of the building, mm -hmm. we would both come in, you would head to the football area, I would head to the business ops area, but right by that elevator, we would have conversations about football and you would share these thoughts and we would have these discussions. And there was never a time we had conversations about the X's and O's of football, about a particular game, a particular matchup, or the game in general that I didn't walk away impressed with your knowledge, your insights, and the way you approach the game. Just incredibly intellectually smart and honest. Thanks, Amy. Speaking of the Raiders, um, I want you to, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the different roles you had you know, up to the time you became president and, um, you know, the areas uh, that you led and how you led in different roles, because I get asked that question all the time, is how do, how do I lead in this role? I'm not the president. I, I'm not a partner in the firm. Uh, maybe you can, you know, elaborate on that a little bit. Well, I'll answer sort of the end point before I go into my experience. 
not every organization, not every individual leading every organization is willing to allow others to shine or to take on leadership roles or to lead in any given instance. And that's not the right approach in my view. In my view, the best leaders not only give others space to lead, they encourage them to do so. They commend them in front of everyone when they do so. They send a message to everyone in the organization that leadership from everywhere is appreciated. But I recognize that's not the case in all organizations. Look, as I noted earlier, I made a lot of mistakes throughout my career. This is one I did not make. This is something I think I did well. I let others know that everyone's input was welcome. Everyone's leadership was welcome. An organization is only as good as the people involved with that organization. So really shame on any leader who is more concerned with advancing oneself, with promoting oneself, with keeping attention on oneself than one is with the good of the organization as a whole. As to my career trajectory, uh, there's a couple of things I would point to that may be of value to those listening. I started out um, as an intern. And while I, of course, did everything asked of me, I also did everything and anything I could to help in any manner. And I did that throughout my career. It's always interesting to me that people want to give lip service to teamwork, teamwork, let's be a team. And yet they don't act as they would hope that teammates on a sports team would act. And I'll use a football and then a business example. When the left tackle is having trouble blocking his man, the left guard is going to handle his responsibilities as a left guard, but is also going to slide over and do anything and everything he can to help the left tackle with his man. You don't just say, hey, I did my job. That's not what a teammate does on the field or off the field. And the reason I note that example of, you know, another football example, if a corner is having trouble covering his man, well, then a safety is going to help. It's not going to be the view of the coaches or the safety that, hey, I did my job. I'm not helping that corner do his. That's not what teammates do. And what always amazes me, it amazed me throughout my career, and it still does, is people who expect that of teammates on the field don't understand that that applies to teammates off the field. Any number of times, many, many times, people would pop into my office and say, hey, Aim, you know, I finished up for the day, so I'm going to take off early. Or, you know, hey, I, I got done, you know, I got my job done, so I'm going to take the rest of the afternoon. And I would respond and say, okay, thank you for letting me know. But did you think of checking with your teammates to see if maybe you could help them in any regard? In other words, you may have finished your responsibilities, but if you're going to talk about being a teammate, you know, you see your other teammates, some of whom have been here till midnight every night this week, or some of whom are buried in work. If you're going to talk about being a teammate on the field and that the left guard should help the left tackle or the safety should help the corner, well, shouldn't you be offering to help your teammates? So, you know, that's one thing about which I'm very passionate. And that's something I did throughout my career. And by the way, it drove a lot of people nuts. When I started with the Raiders, both as an intern and as a young, new, full-time employee, I did whatever 
was my primary responsibility. But then I'd walk around the organization and I'd offer to help people. I would go into the ticket office and if, I, if they were busy stuffing envelopes or alphabetizing envelopes for will call, I'd sit down and I would just handle the alphabetizing of the envelopes. I could do that. I didn't need to be a genius at how to sell tickets to know how to alphabetize envelopes. And by sitting down and alphabetizing the envelopes, I was freeing up those people in the ticket office who would otherwise be alphabetizing envelopes to do more in terms of ticket sales. And that's just one example. But I walked around the organization seeing where I could help and learning about every different department. And at one point, as I was doing this very, very early in my career, a few people noted to me, oh, Al's not going to like it. Al's not going to like it that you're walking around the organization and butting into things. Al, uh, you know, and, and I, got, I won't bother repeating all of the admonitions and the warnings, but I got a lot of that. Well, I didn't stop doing what I was doing. And one day, again, early in my career, I was walking up our main staircase. This is in Los Angeles because I joined the team when it was in L.A. And Al was walking down that very staircase at the exact same moment. And he stopped me. And he said, where are we on ticket sales? And I knew the answer. And what that told me at that moment was Al was well aware that I had been walking around the organization learning in every single department. That had been called to his attention and he was aware of it. And by asking me that question, he sent a message that not only was he aware I was doing this, he encouraged me to continue doing it. Just with that one question asking me, hey, where are we on ticket sales? Told me he knew what I was doing and he was encouraging me to continue to do it. And I did. Yeah, that's great insight. And, you know, I was thinking about the, the first thing you said about coming to your office and, and telling you that they were going to leave. I, I, the one bit of advice I've always given the people that I've worked with is before you leave the building, check in with your superior and say, I'm heading out. Is there anything I can do for you? And not only doing that with your superior, but checking in with the people that you're mostly connected to in whatever part of the offense or defense or special teams or whatever it might be. Just a simple question with your heart behind it. Is there anything I can do to help? You know, wonderful. it goes a long way. Well, absolutely wonderful. And I, I agree. And I never, ever, ever left the building as I was growing within the organization without doing the same with the people to whom I reported and to others in the building. Hey, I'm thinking of leaving. Is there anything else I can be doing to help? And, you know, that's a good moment for me to, to note that hard work matters. It really, really matters. When you are looking to grow and advance within your careers, remember that hard work matters. Work as hard as you can. And when you, can't, when you think you can't work any harder, find a way to work harder. Yeah. You know, and, and hard, go ahead. Finish. Go ahead. No, you no. go. You go. I was just going to say that hard work is, is something that can only be done in the present moment. It's part of the process and it keeps your focus away from getting to where you want to go by doing what you can do in the moment to get to where you want to go. Cause that's where the, that's where the, you, you make your money is, is in the moment go, working the process to get to achieve your vision or to achieve your goal or to get the title you want or whatever it might be. And in doing so, do it by helping others along the way. Well, and I would add that we hear this expression so much these days, work smart. Okay, fine. Work smart. That's, that's great. 
but it's not a substitute for working hard. Oh, that's exactly right. Can you tell me a little bit, we're in the Raiders organization now and you've moved up and now you've become the team president. You know, when you stepped into the shoes of the team president, you know, did you begin to look at, at leadership a little bit differently? Uh, I will just note, and I'm doing this not because I in any way wish to correct you because it's fine for you to use whatever title you want. I've never cared about titles, yes. but I don't want people to think I'm being presumptuous because my title wasn't president. We didn't have a president. Right, um, right. I had a different title, but again, I often, see, there you go. That's the girl who went to law school in me coming through and just feeling that I needed to not assume a title that wasn't mine. Amy, none of, none of <laughs> us had titles. None of us had titles when we were with the Raiders. So. I don't like titles, by the way. You were you were a leader in the organization. There's no doubt about that, right? I was. You were were chief executive of the Raiders, basically. Well, and and I could not agree any more strongly with you than I do. Titles don't matter. Um, Titles aren't important, and I believe that throughout my career. What you do, how you lead, how you contribute—that's what matters. And please know, the only reason I made that adjustment is because the girl who went to law school that resides in side of me had to had to be accurate. Yeah, I should know uh, better too. I went to law school, so I, I stand corrected. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't, you know, I was with the organization almost 30 years. And as I said earlier, I grew up not only in terms of how to do a job, but I grew up just in general on the job. So of course I evolved over that time. I don't know that I could point to any one particular issue. I don't know, maybe you have some suggestions as to how I can better answer that. No, just expressing your, you know, how did you lead your team in the building? Do you have some general values that you stood by as you, you led your team? I mean, you talked a little bit about your vulnerability, about admitting your mistakes and people feeling safe to admit their mistakes. Maybe there's nothing more than that, but I just, I just wondered when I stepped in the shoes of a head coach, I didn't realize all that it in you know, it entailed. I, I, I almost apologized to every head coach that I ever worked for because <laughs> as an assistant, you really don't know. And then you step into these shoes and you're, you see a whole different picture of reality and you see your responsibility. You see how everything is interconnected, you know, from the person who cleans the building to the quarterback and everybody in between, you know, there is a uh, something that I never saw as an assistant coach. So I was just wondering, stepping into the shoes of, you know, one of the, you know, the tip of the spear, so to speak, leaders in the organization, did you see it differently? Did you see your role uh, differently or the responsibility? A couple things in that regard. And I want to touch base on your point about everybody being interconnected. I'll do that in a minute. Um, I don't think so, Mark. And the reason is this. Having grown up on that job, having spent almost 30 years on that job, I grew into the job. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a bright line moment for me when I accepted the job. I grew into the role. Uh, And I will again emphasize that, which I emphasized at the beginning, although I was wordy and inarticulate and didn't do so well, I will try to be more succinct now. To thine own self be true. Mm -hmm. When Mm -hmm. I remembered on the job, to apply to the job that advice my mom gave to me. It helped in every regard. Sure. sure. To thine own self be true. Now in, and, and yes, I did admit my mistakes. That was being true to myself. I worked as hard as I could. That's how my parents raised me. 
to believe that hard work matters. So all of the things I did that I think helped were simply me being me. But I do want to note the point you just made about interconnectivity, something I reminded staff of all the time. When I say staff, I mean everybody on staff. And the reason I use that word is that's how that's a football term. We refer to football staff. So there's nothing pejorative intended with the word staff. That's a word that's used in football. I reminded all of my coworkers, all of my colleagues, every single person in the organization is important. If the groundskeeper doesn't do his job well and your starting left corner stumbles in a pothole on the field and you lose him for a game or games, that groundskeeper hasn't helped you win. If the receptionist who answers the phone, and yes, this was back in the old days where people didn't call you on direct lines or on your cell phone. They went through a receptionist. Mm -hmm. If she didn't answer the phone or he didn't answer the phone, promptly and a call didn't get through from that one agent for that one particular free agent who then went to another team, that person answering that phone hasn't helped you win. Every single job matters. Every single person contributes to whether an organization succeeds or does not succeed. The other thing is you never, ever, ever know from where or from whom the next great idea will come. Your equipment manager may have a phenomenal idea for your social media platforms. Your receptionist may have a tremendous idea for your fan connectivity department or your community affairs department. Leaders who don't listen to every idea, no matter from where or from whom it comes, are not doing it right in my view. Yeah, 100%. Um, one of the first meetings that I would have in training camp is I brought the cleaning people who did the bathrooms in the locker room because I felt that if a player's come in and that, that, that room isn't clean or it smells, our focus is taken away from winning on Sunday. And we've got people complaining about you know the smell in the locker room, and that takes time away from winning. So I, I 100% agree that once people see that everybody matters and we're all interconnected and what you do uh, directly and or indirectly affects our ability to win on the scoreboard, uh, the team is going to be in a better position to do just that. Um, I, I know I'm, we're on the clock and I'm kind of watching the clock, Amy, so I know where we are. And I want to hit on two other things with our time remaining. You've always talked about the four C's, communication, cooperation, collaboration, and coordination. I, I hope I got that right. Um, I'd like to hit on each one of them, you know, as it relates to leadership. And I do want to spend, I'd be remiss if we couldn't spend a few minutes on Mr. Davis. So can we start with the four C's? Sure. Um, and you got them absolutely correct. I've long said that, and I will continue to say that. The, the four most important words in business are, in my view, communicate, cooperate, collaborate, and coordinate. Because without those four things, you cannot be as successful as you otherwise would. Communicate with your coworkers. Collaborate with your coworkers cooperate with your coworkers and coordinate all that you are doing with your coworkers. Um, I have so little tolerance and no respect for people who keep things secret, keep things private. They don't want to share with others because they're concerned about gaining credit or who gets credit for what. That's not being a teammate. And again, 
if you're going to expect your athletes on the field to be teammates, and that's whether you're working for a team or you're simply a fan, if you're going to talk about players being teammates, why the heck wouldn't you expect everybody in business to act as a teammate as well? Yeah, exactly right. Um, I, I liked your, your discussion of collaboration and people understanding that the equipment man could have an idea for social media and being able to listen as a leader to everybody. And if everybody's willing to speak up, that means you've put them in a position to feel safe, to be able to communicate. And I, I think that that goes, goes a long way. Uh, May, before Day we jump in, before we jump into that, I want to add one more note to what I said. Sure. You do want everybody to feel encouraged to share ideas. And as I said, you never know from whom the next great idea is going to come. That said, not every idea is a great idea. But you, and, and by the way, some ideas are crummy ideas. But from even the crummiest, goofiest idea may come a discussion which yields a phenomenal idea. So in order to encourage people to throw out any idea they wanted without reservation or without concern that it might be deemed a bad idea, I threw out ideas. And I was the first to say when I threw out a crummy one, oh boy, that's a crummy idea. I didn't think that through well. And then we would discuss it. And sometimes from that crummy idea would come a terrific idea. So encourage people to throw out ideas as crummy or goofy as they may be. Yeah, I just, I love that. I mean, I, when you, when I've sat in meeting rooms with assistant coaches and I've thrown out ideas and I watch them cringe visually and verbally, you know, why do we want it? You know, they're thinking, why do we, why do I want to do that? Well, I'm only bringing it up because I don't think it's the best idea, but maybe it hits a wire in your brain exactly. that creates an idea that can help us win. So just because it doesn't fit what we need to do doesn't mean a part of that idea can't trigger something in somebody else's mind. We just have to take the time to be open to listen and not be so reactive in a sense that why would he want to do that? Why do we want to run this protection this week? Well, just hear me out. And you know what? It's not perfect, but maybe somebody's got a better idea, but let's get it started. Let's get this party started. Exactly. By... And you know what? Exactly. And you know what? If you suggest a crummy idea, be the first to laugh at yourself exactly. because then other people are going to feel more comfortable if they suggest a crummy idea. Yeah, I think and a just sense so of you humor. Know, and, Go ahead. And just so you know, there were times I remember, um, and I don't remember if this was when you were with us. I don't think it was. But I remember we used this little itty bitty bitty back to chip on the, a defender that was probably four times his weight. Maybe not the best idea. So out of that came better ideas. That's right. We can't have a tight end blocking, you know, a 275 or 80 pound defensive lineman that can run four five. He's going to need some help type right. of thing. But and you know what? You know, I think that, you know, winning organizations have a sense of humor and we've got to have a little fun with it as, as we go along. And if it you know, we, we, we're able to laugh at ourselves and say, man, that was a crummy idea. That's OK, because <laughs> that yeah. creates another environment of people feeling safe you know, and, and comfortable. And, and I think eventually leads to a winning environment. Last thing, but uh, maybe the first thing, because um, I'm sure Mr. Davis was unbelievably instrumental in your life over your time with him. Um, he was, he was for me, my three years uh, with the Raiders was a lifetime of learning. And Mr. Davis was such a key part of that. And you know, people, I want always wanted people to know that, that Mr. Davis 
he loved his team. He loved his coaches. I, I believe he loved me. He, he connected with me almost every year after I left. And that's after he fired our staff. So, um, you know, I, I just respected that. I learned so much from him, but uh, nobody spent more time with him than you. Maybe you can just, you know, give our, our listeners just sure. a, a little bit of what he was all about and his leadership style. And um, I'll just start with one story and you can take it from there. My first day on the job, I walked downstairs and Mr. Davis, as you know, worked out with our train, our, our uh, weight coach, uh, Garrett Guimont. And I, and I, I saw him walking towards me and uh, I said, well, this is it. I'm going to meet Mr. Davis. So I stuck out my hand and I said, Mr. Davis, uh, my name's Mark Tressman. I'm, I'm a new member of the staff. How you doing? He, he went and I'll keep it clean. He says, how the heck do you think I'm doing? We haven't gone to the Super Bowl in 20 years. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, I just kind of cringed up, walked away. And I said, you know what, I'm, we're going to get you to the Super Bowl. I said that under my breath and, you know, we did, we didn't do all we could, but we, we got him there. And, uh, so why don't you take it from here? Um, you know, a guy I really, really sure. miss. Yeah. Um, I will note at the outset, the obvious, which is there will be people listening to this who may, may love the Raiders may hate the Raiders, may have loved Al, may have disliked or hated Al. There'll be all sorts of views on the Raiders and Al. Um, But I would hope if we're all being intellectually honest, we can understand uh, and recognize what he did in terms of providing opportunities for those to whom such opportunities had not been previously provided. And I'll share this chronologically, not in order of importance, of course. He hired Tom Flores. He hired me. He advanced Art Shell from a position coach to head coach. And he was doing these things because his view always was race, gender, and other individualities, which have no bearing whatsoever on how one can do a job. And that's what that's uh, before it was the thing to do. Right. You're, you're absolutely. I just right. wanted to throw having, that in there. I know you. I'm know glad that. you did. I'm very glad you did because the conversations that are going on um, currently and have been going on for a number of years about diversity and inclusiveness, about women in sports, women in the workplace, all other sorts of things. Those weren't conversations. Those weren't topics on the table, so to speak, back when Al hired Tom and hired me and advanced art. And again. This is someone who knew and who acted on the knowledge that race, gender, and these other individualities have no bearing on whether one can do a job. And, you know, there were times during my career when I said to him, you don't get enough credit for this because he, he wasn't given acknowledgement or credit at all for it. And he looked at me and just said as clearly as can be, hey, I didn't do it to get credit. I don't want credit. And that's the point. He did it for the right reasons. Look, I owe my career to the fact that he was absolutely unconcerned that I was a girl. And one of, one of the most special stories, um, special moments for me during my career was in a meeting. And I'll make a longer story short. But he said to someone in the meeting, someone from a business, um, an, another business, introducing himself before the meeting and said, you know, uh, and this was a woman. He said, 
you know, I try very hard not to swear in front of women. And I start looking at my coworkers like, did he just say that? Did he actually just say he tries not to swear in front of women? And then he goes on and says to this woman, and even if I do swear during the meeting, I apologize, but I would never swear at a woman. And now I'm so incredulous. I'm staring at everyone and the pen I'm holding flips out of my hand and lands on the table. And he looks at me and he realizes why, what happened. And he says, oh, Amy, I swear at Amy, but I don't consider her a woman. And he could not have paid a greater compliment to me. And I share that because that speaks to who he was. He didn't care about our individualities. He cared whether we did the job. Uh, I talked earlier about becoming a Raider fan in, in college when the Raiders were in Oakland and I was at Berkeley. And so much of the team, I mean, look, this was a man who refused multiple times or on multiple occasions to play a game in the segregated South. And he got, and as a result of his refusal to do so, those games were moved. I just loved it. He gave people second chances and he gave people third and fourth chances. And as the kid who was labeled a behavior problem in kindergarten and the kid who was given multiple chances, that struck a chord with me. He didn't care if you were a behavior problem, which I was. He gave people second chances as I was given a second chance. Uh, I used to watch um, road games, you know, on television, I would watch Raider games. And when the Raiders were on the road or other teams were on the road, you would see teams getting out of the bus and they were wearing suits and sports coats and carrying briefcases. And then you'd see the Raiders get out of the team bus and they would just roll out of it looking like the cat had just dragged them in from somewhere. And I loved that too. So I guess I'll share one last thing about him, which is the biggest misconception about Al was that you couldn't disagree with him. Over the course of a 30-year career, I disagreed with him more than I agreed with him. And I shared those disagreements with him. And we disagreed fiercely with one another. Um, I disagreed with him roughly two weeks into the job. And I went on to work with him for almost 30 years. So yeah. that that's a... That is a misconception about him. I agree. He would call me in his office. He'd ask me about a protection. I'd give him the answer and he'd say, all right, all right. I got you. I got you. Yeah, Sounds exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know what? Um, and, and Mark, I will, I will conclude with this. That disagreement I had with him two weeks into my job, he walked into a room where I was sitting with another, uh, with a coworker, and he lit into this guy like I can only imagine a velociraptor would tear into flesh. And after I'm listening to him a while, I realized he was wrong. So I said, excuse me, you're wrong. And I didn't use a soft voice because I don't have a soft voice and because I needed to be he heard over his yelling. And he turned around and I will never forget the look on his face when he looked at me like, what did you say? I mean, I'd been there two and a half weeks. And I said, I went on to say, you're wrong. Now, look, if you were basing your conclusion on accurate information, it would be a fair conclusion. But you are basing your conclusion on inaccurate facts and inaccurate data, and you are wrong. And we went on to have a very, very firm, loud, fierce disagreement. I learned later that people had gathered in the hallway to listen because we were so loud. And one woman brought boxes because she figured I'd have to pack up and leave. But to you, the reason I brought this up is he said exactly to me what he said to you. When we were done arguing quite a while later, he said, okay, I gotcha. And we moved on. 
Well, I'm glad we got a, a five minutes to honor him. We could do a whole podcast on him because there's so many good stories. But, uh, you know, he was special. And I think you accentuated that here. I've got one minute. Can I hit you with some quick hitters with some short answers and we'll finish up? Um, you absolutely can. Of okay. Um, advice you'd give the 18-year-old Amy Trask? Another version of yourself. To let go of my insecurities. And I will note quickly um, that the reason I am doing this by audio only is because of one of those insecurities. I grew up um, always insecure about my physical appearance. And being on television is the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Being on camera, the scariest thing I've ever done on my life. Uh, Thankfully, CBS provides magicians who comb my hair and do my makeup, and that helps a little bit. But I'm not on camera right now because it still scares me. So the advice I would give my 18-year-old self is to work hard to overcome and let go of, of your insecurities. Thank you for sharing that, Amy. If you weren't a lawyer or an executive, you would be a... Oh, my gosh. I think about all these different things. I think about this from time to time. I might be a teacher. I might teach what my mom would refer to as the inchy pinchies, you know, kindergartners. I, I was labeled a behavior problem in kindergarten, and I don't think any teacher should ever label a child, let alone one that young. So I think about how fun it might be to teach kindergartners. I also think I might have the patience that would last a day in that job. Um, I also think that I would like to spend a big chunk of the rest of my life uh, working as I currently do to the extent I do it now, I'd like to do it more saving, rescuing animals, mm -hmm. cleaning out our oceans, boy, all kinds of things. Yeah. I don't, it, just so many different things. When I'm not watching football or commenting, what am I doing? Probably referred to that already. Um, eating a lot of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. What am I doing when I'm not? Boy, I just any number of things, getting yeah. into trouble, going to the beach. That sounds good. I know I you you get one thank you note besides your mom. One thank you note to thank somebody for lifting you up and bringing you to this moment. Well, can I amend your question and saying besides thanking my mom and dad, and then offering yes. one other? You better, you better, you're okay. in trouble. <laughs> yeah, it would be um, to Al. Yeah, yeah. He afforded, me the opportunity, he afforded me the opportunity of a lifetime. Yeah. Well, um, Amy Trask, you are freaking awesome. And um, I'm so grateful that you would spend this hour with us. There's so many takeaways from what you had to say. And, you know, we're all going to get better because of it. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It was an honor and a pleasure to join you. See you next time. Thanks go out to our executive producer, Greg Levy, Associate Dean and Director of the Entertainment, Arts, and Sports Law Program at the University of Miami School of Law. I want to also thank our engineer and editor, Christopher Elzadi, our theme music from Calyptra, and special acknowledgement to our research assistant, Nick Rossi, a fellow attorney and student who's done a great job in our preparation. 